0: Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special version of Words with Writers podcast.
1: Today, we are excited to bring you our full Director's Cut interview with Mark Leslie Lefebvre.
0: Mark's first short story appeared in print in 1992, the same year he started working in the book industry. He has published more than 25 books under the name Mark Leslie that include thrillers and fiction, including Evasion, Evasion, a Canadian Werewolf in New York, and Fear and Longing in Los Angeles. Paranormal nonfiction such as Haunted Hospitals, Spooky Sudbury, and Tomes of Terror, and anthologies like Campus Chills, Tesseract's 16, and Obsessions. Under his full name, he writes books to help authors navigate publishing. And they include the seven Ps of publishing success, and an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores. His industry experience includes president of the Canadian Booksellers Association, board member of BookNet Canada, director of author relations and self-publishing for Rakuten Kobo, director of business development for Draft2Digital, and professional advisor for Sheridan College's creative writing and publishing honors program. Mark lives in Waterloo, Ontario, and can be found online at www.marklesley.ca. Welcome to the show, Mark.
2: Oh, thanks, Brandy. It's uh, great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you here, Mark. Uh, I actually read your first uh, Canadian werewolf book a while ago, and then I was sitting at a Haunted Walk series series. Um, earlier this year. And I saw, I was like, Hey, I think that's, I, I know that guy. <laughs> we
2: were both in the audience, right?
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sitting around the virtual fire.
2: <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. It was nice and toasty and a little chilly too. <laughs> right. <Yeah.
1: laughs> uh, so Mark, one of the things that I find most admirable, just dive right in uh, about how, about you is how diverse your portfolio is um, in terms of subject matter and medium. Like, you've delved into pretty much all of modern media, I think, for your work. Are there um, anything, yeah, is, is there anything you like more than others, or? Lately,
2: uh, lately the, the genre of comedy has been fun, and lately, um, experimenting with different audio and video storytelling has been fun for me. Uh, I will always return to writing, and oftentimes, that will start with some sort of script anyways that has to be written. But I really love that um, multi-dimensionality because I guess I've always believed I'm a storyteller and I always know I will write and I always know I will tell stories and and it started when with the pandemic actually I was having trouble writing actually writing I was you know frustrated and anxious and there was a lot going on and I turned to parody and parody video uh, you know writing parody music video and and uh, and my partner uh and I ended up doing a duet a parody and we did a video to it and that broke me out of my so-called writer's block mm-hmm. um, because it proved to me that i could be a storyteller i could still have the storyteller life in mm-hmm. other media and even prior to that taking some of the ghost stories and using a, an audio gps based map to go back to the research i'd done for my very first book with Thunder and All haunted Hamilton and readapting that same content into a virtual half hour walking tour. And I think readapting stuff that you've worked on already into new formats is almost as exciting as writing new stuff, right? You can take the same nugget and explode it into more than 300 pages down between two pieces of cloth, right? The definition of book. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. I'm a, i am I just started recording my novel into audiobook format and I'm I'm quite enjoying that actually so. yeah
2: and you probably notice that um so do you do you modify the text on the fly sometimes when you're recording because you know like sometimes yeah. when you do a reading you go yeah I'm just gonna tweak that here because for and it's why you know movies are different than the book because it's a different format you have to adapt mm-hmm. it has to be unique to that and the same thing i think with audio which probably drives the people at whisper sync mad but i often (laughs) apologize in in the audiobooks that i record myself and say hey it's my book right this may divert from the text of the original print and guess what the print version may look a little bit different than the ebook too so haha
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i did i did and actually as part of the initial editing process for the book i read it out loud to myself, but I didn't read it from a storyteller's perspective. I just read the text and now reading it, telling the story, I'm like, Hey, it would sound better out loud this way. So,
2: But I found when, when, for the text that I'm reading for, when I'm doing the audio, reading it as if I were a storyteller, I find things I didn't find when I was just reading it, even reading it aloud. I often tell people, you know, print it out, read it off the paper. You're going to see things you don't see on the screen read it aloud, but then read it aloud as if for a performance and you'll see it differently too. It's so funny how we uh, we perceive things uh, depending upon the intended uh, outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: Absolutely. so, yeah. That's so interesting. I'm such a reader. I don't always think about what it would be in a different context, but you're right. You read a book that later becomes a movie and you watch the movie and it's changed from the book because some of those scenes just aren't going to work on that different medium, right?
2: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, one of the best examples recently is uh, when uh, Bad Out of Hell was playing on stage in Toronto as a musical, Jim Steinman's music that, you know, Meatloaf performed. Mm-hmm. On stage we saw the song Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, which is a lovely ballad. Well, lovely, but it is it, 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 <laughs> it's it's a sentimental sort of uh ballad. But it was done er- originally for the for the stage performance as a duet. And you know, we're we're familiar with the Meatloaf song where he just sings the song, mm-hmm. but on stage it's a duet. And I went, Whoa, that was now it makes more sense. <laughs> It was so. It's a, it's the same piece of material, just just perform differently, and I I kind of love that. Uh, I love that opportunity you get when you when you play with different media.
0: Mm-hmm. You get you know different experiences with just kind of one piece of work. So that's very interesting. So you have a, a something to read for us today, correct?
2: Yeah. So this is a a short story, short short story called The Shadow Men, and it was written specifically to be read aloud in front of a campfire. So I thought uh, nice and short, it's a self-contained story. And it was actually derived from a different short story that I wrote that was much longer and it was like this little aspect that I had in it and I just wasn't done playing with it. So I wrote it specifically for an anthology, uh, to, for that purpose, like campfire ghost stories. So this is the, uh, the shadow men. I'll never forget the night that changed my life forever. It happened in the woods when I was 10 years old. It was dark. The air was crisp and chilly. Curious little sounds cut through the night. Small animals rustling in the nearby bushes, the haunting call of a loon on the lake, leaves whispering in the breeze. And the air was charged with the smell of the still-burning campfire embers of a recently doused campfire. It was a night, in fact, not all that different than tonight. I was sleeping in a four-man tent with my parents and younger brother and woke up with an overwhelming urge to pee. I crawled out of my sleeping bag, careful not to wake anyone else, slipped outside the tent and headed down the moonlit path to where I remembered the outhouse was. Before I took more than a dozen steps, I heard a noise behind me, the crack of a branch breaking underfoot. With my hairs standing on edge, I managed not to let out a yelp as I turned. There on the path, not three steps behind me, stood my little brother. Look on his cute button-nosed face like I'd just caught him sneaking a treat from the cookie jar. Jimmy! I whispered. What are you doing? He stood with his right leg partially crossing over the left. Need to pee, he said, shifting his weight from foot to foot. Jeez, Jimmy, if you had to go that bad, why'd you wait so long? Because, he said, his six-year-old eyes widened bright in the reflected moonlight. The shadow man might get me. I felt a shiver run down my spine, despite the fact that I knew the shadow men were something my father had conjured up that evening around the campfire they were the boogeymen of the new hampshire wilderness that hid behind trees and lurked in the shadows their sole purpose was to trick little boys down the wrong path in the woods deeper and deeper into the forest and far away from the safety of their parents even at 10 i knew my father told the story to use for fun and perhaps partially to keep us from wandering far from them you know but when jimmy said that i still felt the chill the shadow men are real jimmy Aren't 2 listen. At just that moment, the haunting call of a loon echoed through the forest, delivering a deep shiver up the base of my spine. That's just a loon, I said. But the chill wouldn't go away. No, listen, Charlie, it's a little boy, one that the shadow man tricked. He's warning us. Frustrated with my brother and okay, a little frightened. I just wanted it to end. I didn't want to hear anymore so I thought I'd throw a good scare into him. I turned and ran down the path. Jimmy, I called out, behind you, the shadow men are behind you. He let out a cry, wait. Able to see the path clearly in the moonlight, I ran fast, took a sharp turn and ducked down behind a low bush. Jimmy ran past me, still calling ahead on the trail for me to stop, panic rising in his voice as he seemed to think I'd already gotten far ahead of him. I had to put my hands in my mouth to suppress a laugh, but I stayed silent that way, listening to the padding of his footfalls on the packed earth path And his calls for me to wait for him receding into the darkness. His last cry was drowned out by the shrill call of a loon in the distance. And I never saw him again. But I hear him all the time. Now every time I'm out in the wilderness out camping, I can hear my little brother's voice. Somewhere masked within the sad, mournful, unearthly half-laughing, half-wailing cry of a loon, I can hear my little brother warning me. That the shadow men are near. Just listen. Tell me what you hear. And ideally, if you read that in front of a campfire in, you know, Northern Ontario or in New England, maybe just at the right time a loon will call and freak the hell out of everyone.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not around a campfire right now, but when you said, and I never saw him again, I went, What? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, that was great, thank and
1: you. I, I, I think that shiver and chill is something probably everyone who's gone camping has experienced when they, they're they like, I really don't <laughs> want to pee right now, it's too dark. <laughs> I gotta go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Anybody who's been camping knows that feeling
2: race. of getting it in, sorry. Oh, sorry Brandy, I cut <laughs> you off there.
0: <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs>
2: I was just gonna say, uh, when I tell ghost stories in person, I, you know, you can read the people's faces, and then you, you you play into them as you're as you're telling the story. But that's one of the ones where if you have someone planted just something <laughs> and then they let out a shriek, <laughs> just as you say, just listen, and then them, like that's the kind of jump scare that really makes it that much more memorable for people.
1: <laughs> Although if
0: anybody's sitting there holding it in, they're gonna be themselves. <laughs>
2: Yeah, don't need to pee anymore.
1: Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: great. Absolutely. Uh, so, Mark, you're... that was an awesome story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to, to touch briefly. So, you're very passionate about self-publishing and print-on-demand as, as options. Um, can you tell us anything about your successes and challenges with it? yeah
2: so I think the the biggest uh, the biggest thing that I recognize is the value of both traditional publishing and self-publishing and I think if authors only consider one they're kind of cutting their opportunities in half so to speak because okay. I make most of my money from traditional publishing with print book sales and most of my money from self-publishing with ebook sales hmm. um, because there's there's different benefits there and so what I always uh, tell authors to think about is every single project that you do may have uh, a better path or a, a path that works better for you. Or again, you can split it off. Like, like I said, I sold the rights to a publisher with Haunted Hamilton. Uh, I've used some of the research to, to, to create other digital content like the GPS enabled. Uh, and even sometimes it's an ebook, sometimes it's whatever. Um, so I think that the important thing that authors should consider is it's not just thinking about, okay, I'm gonna put my ebook up on Amazon. There are many, many other options. There's many opportunities. There's platforms like Wattpad where you can you know, experiment and, and play with. Um, they're, they're not as uh, critical if you put up a first draft. Like I put up my novel Evasion after the first draft was just spit out after NaNoWriMo just to see, eh, is this any good? Does anyone like it? People loved it to death, uh, in which case I ended up hiring an editor to actually edit it. Uh, Wattpad featured it. It's had over 300,000 reads there but the two biggest common questions i had were where can i buy this in print or ebook <laughs> so so then i put out the audiobook and then i put out the print book and the and the ebook and 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 made that available now the the next common question is when's book 2 coming which i mail failed miserably at so that would be my advice don't do what i did i had three first three book ones out and no book twos <laughs> not, not a good strategy don't do as Donnie don't does over here <laughs>
0: Fair enough. (laughs) Well, I mean, many of our listeners and ourselves included, of course, uh, struggle with balancing writing with a working life. You have over 25 books and stories, um, plus publishing, editing, uh, very active professional life. So how do you find the time to be creative?
2: Uh, I I think I'm lucky that I'm creative in everything I do. So I still uh, and I wouldn't do the work that I do if I wasn't able to be creative. And potentially that's usually when I move on to a different job uh, or role and say, well, I'm done here. I'm done creating. I left Kobo because we had already built something pretty awesome and there was less new things to create and I was feeling stifled. So I'm like, I think I need to change. Um, But one of the things that is really, really critically important is, and I did this when I was working a corporate job and I still do it today. Because I still get up super early. My dad was a fisherman, so I think I come by that naturally. I get up super early, five in the morning, five thirty in the morning, and I dedicate that first hour or two to writing and and creativity. I tend to be more creative in the light of a full moon or something, uh, or just nocturnal. Um, and then, because once I start doing the maintenance tasks and the marketing tasks and all the other tasks that are associated with the business, a different part of my brain kicks in, and I'm not. I'm creative in a different way, uh, so I always uh, I always have to uh, put it in my calendar and make it a priority to get those things done. Because when I don't write, I'm a pretty miserable person to be around. When I'm not creative, when I'm not able to express myself, just ask uh, my partner Liz; she'll uh, she'll tell you <laughs> when I'm not when I don't have those creative juices flowing. I'm pretty crabby because there's something wrong with me, right? I'm not I'm not the way I want to be or naturally inclined to be.
1: It's part of your being,
2: exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to say, my uh, my father was a fisherman too. I grew up in Nova Scotia, and he was uh, a lobster fisherman and all all that kind of stuff. Um, but I did not get the love for getting up early. No. Unfortunately,
2: <laughs> I, I grew into it over the years. But it was kind of like my dad was the one who woke up the rooster, who woke up the sun. You know that kind of thing.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I struggle a little bit. I think because I wake up at four. 4 30 for work every day anyway so i just right. i can't bring myself to wake up earlier than that um
0: yeah is there so then I, than that?
1: Yeah,
2: no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. although when i'm I, on deadline i don't go to bed like there, when i have a contract that's due i'm often the people say well how long does it take to write a book i'm like well um five days <laughs> Five full days, like 18 hours a day, if you actually, do. because when the deadline's coming to get that manuscript turned in, there have been times where I was like, well, yeah, okay. I'll take Friday off work and Monday off work. And I'll write the book this weekend. <laughs> no, that's usually after having done all the research, uh, or, uh, yeah. but that's, uh, that's where I kind of go to bed at three and then get up at five. <laughs> right. But, but yeah. I can't do that. You know, that's not sustainable long-term. I need at least five hours sleep every night.
1: Yeah. I've guess I've gone through spurts of that when I'm doing nanorimo or when I'm really in depth with something too. So. Yeah. Deadline, right? Pressure. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> A little yeah. bit of Queen and David Bowie there. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Don't make me yeah, I just
2: put an earworm in your head, didn't I?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> so one last question espresso book machine (laughs) can you please explain that
2: to yeah this is a a beautiful machine that is uh probably about um six feet uh long maybe three feet wide and uh, there's only maybe 250 in the world right now uh back in the day the 2008 2009 i owned the second in canada and the ninth in the world uh, when i worked at the university of bookstore at mcmaster And what this magical machine does is it will print and bind a book in about 15 minutes, right on the sales floor of a bookstore. Um, Trade paperback, virtually indistinguishable from a book that came from a printer. The only difference is there's no gloss uh, on top of the cover, right? So it's it's a little bit different, but the same quality uh, that you would get, virtually the same quality you get from a print-on-demand machine through Ingram, for example. And uh, I, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, There were access to millions of titles. You could just find it in the catalog, print it, just make sure that that it's loaded. It does the printing, does the, like, what a a marvelous machine. And that's where I, I ended up publishing Campus Chills, is it was an anthology funded by McMaster, University of Alberta, and University of Waterloo. They gave me the money as the editor, so I could pay authors, Uh, Pro rates for original stories which we originally had only for sale through those university bookstores Uh, and then we made it available to a broader uh, audience later but um, yeah what a I I thought by this point in time because that was what 2009 when I was doing that I thought by now that every bookstore would have one of those machines but I mean I paid 170,000 US for uh, for the one we had at Mac and I think they've come down to 100,000
1: US now (laughs) still still very expensive
2: yeah and they're not like a it's not like a a vending machine you put in your money and you get a book right (laughs) it requires an operator who knows what they're doing i I had to i had to be like a a macgyver book nerd kind of guy who was constantly rolling up my sleeves and going well this didn't work let's try that and shove this in here (laughs) because i mean again these were like early prototypes right we were we were practically alpha and beta users uh in back in the back in the day yeah (laughs)
1: That still sounds awesome, though. Oh, it was yeah. amazing.
2: Um, amazing. I walked into a bookstore in Manhattan a couple of years ago, Shakespeare and Company on the Upper East Side. And uh, just the smell of the glue, when I walked in, I'm like, yes, they have one. <laughs> and ironically, the technician who travels from the U.S. all over the place, John, like all over the world, to, to make, like, he was there. And I'm like, John, I haven't seen you in 12 years <laughs> or whatever it was. So it was really cool to see him. And then I, what, I, what I loved is I did this in Italy, too, when I was in Milan. I ordered one of my books that I knew was available in the Espresso book machine. So I could say I walked into a bookstore in Milan and I ordered one of my books, <laughs> Took them 15 minutes to print it. And like, Ooh, this is not cool. <laughs> so There's so awesome.
0: much cool about that story, including you were in Milan. So we'll have you back <laughs> on more about that. <laughs> cool.
1: Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank and, uh, you very much. It was great to chat. A chat. Yeah, likewise. And uh, look forward to having you back in the future and explore some of your nonfiction work a little more. Excellent.
0: Thanks for being here. Bye.